Well, it's good to see you. I was gone last week. I had been uh, missing out being here. My wife and my sisters and their husbands, we were all in, in Israel last week and got to spend a little time over there. It was great. Uh, on the way home, I got a little souvenir, a little duty-free shopping, caught the cold. So, um, you know, kind of been um, sleeping a lot the last couple days, but by God's grace, I'm here and uh, excited to... Um, to share with you this message. But uh, just to show a couple pictures, you know, what, what a, when you travel to a place like Israel, you can't help but see just how everything is ancient, or most things are ancient. So many things are old. And uh, it really caught uh, up with the, uh, just with kind of the, how old everything was. Like, we don't get that here, right? We're a very new country, and we don't have a lot of old things. We, something that's 50 years old seems ancient to us, but here we are among many ruins. And so here's like just a couple pictures. Um, this, is, um, this is the walls of Jericho. Kind of cool, huh? Um, we'd read the story so many times over on the left side are kind of the, I think that was like the ancient, like the walls that, that fell down when the Israelites walked around it. The walls behind it was when it was rebuilt. But um, there's some, that, that's pretty old. You know, here's another picture on the East Gate, um, out, uh, standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over into Jerusalem, uh, the East Gate, where Jesus is supposed to, to come into Jerusalem through those gates that uh, uh, the Muslims boarded up and put an uh, Islamic graveyard in front of to keep Jesus out of there. But that's, that's old. That's got some history. Um, here's another one. Uh, this is in um, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a, the oldest tree there that is 2,300 years old, meaning that this tree was about 200 years old when Jesus was praying in this garden. Uh, it is the oldest tree, and it's, um, there's a fence around it, but I was able to put my hand around the fence, and I actually touched it. Um, <laughs> kind of uh, thought guards might come with their machine guns to take me away, but I had to try. Um, and so that was, it was really beautiful and meaningful. Um, but just in case you think that I just got all these pictures off the internet and was not there, there is a picture of Laura and I, my sisters and their husbands. And uh, this is in a, a city called Beth Shane. And um, I had read about it many times, you know, over the years, didn't know what it was. But um, if you guys remember, if you've been reading your Bible story, um, when King Saul, um, when he was killed, um, by his enemies. His enemies took him and took him to this city, and they nailed him to the, the fence, uh, the city gate. And um, it was a public humiliation to Israel, saying that your leader has been nailed to the city gate. And um, only to fast forward um, later on when Jesus was nailed to the cross, and they thought that that was a humiliation to all of his followers. Um, but in the end, that is what we rally behind, that cross. But um, anyway, so many, um, so many bits of history. I'm still kind of swimming in uh, all that we saw and all that, but it was an amazing trip. And uh, my wife and I were kind of talking and wondering if this is something that down the road, um, if this is a trip that our church should do, you know, if we want to go together. And so if you're uh, thinking about that, um, if you're interested, um, let's talk about it and let's see. Okay, there's a couple hands already. So there's three or four of us that already can go, but um, it was a great time. So, um, so that, that was um, a nice piece of history. Um, I remember our tour guide saying, um, you know, as we drove along, like, hey, here's a new church, you know, it's only 300 years old. Um, 
because if it's not 1,500 years old, it really doesn't matter. It's all new. But coming back to the States, you know, a little bit of that culture, you know, culture shock or whatever, just looking at the difference between the two cultures. You know, when you really think about it, we, in our culture, we're very young and immature. You know, we just kind of are. And our whole, our, our whole structure, our whole culture is built that way. I mean, if you're maturing, if you're old, you're boring, right? Nobody wants to be 47. You all want to be 27. You want to keep maturing. And our whole, our, all, all of our industry, our whole, all of our um, advertising and all that is about this. It's trying to keep you young and immature. Don't keep that old car. You know, cash it in and get a new car. Everything's new. You know, and we value that, that part. I remember being in the, um, in the airport. We were coming home, and we were standing um, in a line, and there was like four um, Hebrew boys behind me, all kind of like in their 20s. And I was struck at how an older man came by and needed a little bit of help, and they, like, totally helped him. They went, they, like, argued for him. They pushed him to the front of the line, you know, in the TSA line. You know, they got him all the way to the very front so he wouldn't miss his flight. I'm like, what 27-year-old would do that to, like, a a 55-year-old now? Like, they'd be like, you're on your own, you know? But in that culture, they value that maturity. They value that that part of um, history, right? And it's something that we don't understand much. So, but when we look at the Scriptures, when we read the Scriptures, we we see this word that keeps popping up throughout um, our readings, and it's mature. It's transform. It's grow. We see that as followers of Christ, that there's this expectation that we are to grow in our faith. We are to mature. We are to be transforming. Right? And I think most people in the church would, would, would be fine with that. As much as they don't want to get old, as much as they don't want to mature in, in you know, the culture and all that kind of stuff, as followers of Christ, we are to do that. We are to mature. We are to grow. We are to continue to um, transform so that we would become more like Christ. And we, we understand that, that concept, but it's still something that we struggle with. How do we grow as disciples? How do we become like Christ? It's a big question that we are going to try to answer today. Where are we at now? Kind of like, let's put a pin drop. You know, if you're at the mall and you're lost, you look at the map and it says, you are here. Um, Where are we as a culture? Right? As an American culture, where are we in terms of discipleship, as following Christ? Um, probably not very far. We are probably very superficial in our discipleship. We don't have a lot of depth, I would say. Um, and just talking to people too, you know, just here and there, I just hear a lot of people saying, you know, I'm just, I'm just struggling. I'm just kind of um, lackluster. I'm in a rut. You know, I'm not really growing. And I don't think that's like, that's not COVID, all right? We can't blame COVID for everything. <laughs> we blamed it for a lot. We can't blame it for everything because this is kind of how we've been for years, right? Uh, I was reading this, um, this article, this guy, Cal Thomas, he's a social commentator, and he said this. He said, the problem in our culture isn't the abortionists, isn't the pornographers, or the drug dealers or criminals. It's the undisciplined, undiscipled, disobedient, and biblically ignorant church of Jesus Christ. He said that 30 years ago. And uh, in Christianity today, 
30 in Christianity yesterday, <laughs> but it's kind of still true, right? I think. I mean, we as a Christian uh, church, I mean, so many of us, we're, we're kind of undisciplined. We're spiritually undisciplined, right? We, we would rather kind of blend into culture than being distinct, but we're not going to grow. We're not going to be grow and mature to be what Christ has called us to be if we are spiritually undisciplined, if we're blending in a culture, if we're biblically uh, illiterate, right? If we keep thinking that church and community is optional, if we keep our faith to ourselves, we, church, we're meant for more than that. We're meant for more. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 is what Paul writes. Just listen to his passion. He says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that me, we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all energy, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. Listen to that. Like, he's the one we proclaim. We're presenting everyone fully mature in Christ. And this is what Paul strived to do. This is what I think the Lord has called me to do. As the pastor of Ambassador Church, what do I want to do? I want to present you before God as fully mature in Christ. Right? We do a lot of things. We have a lot of fun. We've got meals and all kinds of stuff. But that's not what it's about. Why we gather, why we're here is to become like Christ, to be transforming, to mature into the people that God has called us to be, to be fully mature in Christ. That was Paul's cry. That's my cry. That's our, our, our elders' cry. That's what our passion is. So today and in the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at this topic, right? Kind of discipleship maturing, transforming, growing. How do we grow as disciples? Our mission that we've been talking about these last few weeks is that we exist to make the name of Jesus known. We exist to make the name of Jesus known, to make His glory known. Or we could say it this way, because we love God, because we love Him, we seek to make His name known. We want everybody to know the love of Jesus. And so we're going to be talking about that. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. I mean, Starbucks exists to make coffee. Yes, they sell mugs. They do all this, but they're known for their coffee. You can debate if you like it or not, if it's good or bad, but that's their purpose. Okay? Um, uh, Apple, they exist for uh, personal technology. Used to, I used to be able to say they exist for computers, but now it's watches and phones and all of that, but it's personal technology. Right? Charles Schwab, they exist to make money, hopefully make you money, making them self-money as well. But we see that they have a purpose. In the church, we exist to make disciples, to bring people into the kingdom of God, to mature each one of us to become fully mature in Christ. So that's what we are about. Uh, last week, Pastor Daniel talked about that, how, how we are to uh, know Christ, what that means, right? And we talked about to, to be known by God is to be loved by Him, right? Um, there's this connection of know and love, to be known who we are completely, 
No, no, no mask, no, no um, trying to pretend who we are, that God loves you exactly as you are right now. Right? It's, it's how we find salvation. Right? John 17, 3, it says, Now this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's, it's to know God is to be loved by him. It's to have salvation in him. But it's also to give us direction to purpose in life. Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 3. It's a long passage, but he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. So like everything is worthless uh, compared to knowing Christ. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, to become like him in death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. That's purpose. That is purpose, to know Christ, to know the power of his salvation, to know the resurrection, to be identified with him in our, in our, even in our sufferings. Our purpose, my purpose, is to lead us to know Christ. And so today, as we look at this passage, I want all of us to seek to know Jesus, you know, as we're transformed to love him with our minds, with our actions, with the hearts. And so we'll talk about that today um, in the remainder of our time. Right, so I want you to leave here knowing a little bit, kind of having a concept of what it means to, to know Jesus. Right? Knowing Jesus with your minds, with your body, with your heart. Okay? So let's, let's get into that. First, the discipleship enigma. Let me ask you this. If discipleship is so essential, why is it so confusing to understand? <laughs> right? I mean, if it's so important, I mean, these are the last words that Jesus said to his disciples. He said, go, make disciples, right? Teaching them to obey my words. If it, if it was so in, important, why is it so confusing to us? It would have been helpful if Jesus wrote a book on discipleship, right? That would have saved so many authors, so, many, so much time on writing these books. I mean, I have so many, I have a stack of books on discipleship, each one saying it a little bit different and all that. It would have been helpful if Jesus just said, let me write the book on it, <laughs> right? But, but he didn't. But he told his disciples to go make disciples, and for them it was very clear. They were disciples. Their whole culture is built on discipleship. They knew it. We don't have a culture of discipleship. So it's confusing to us. But for them it wasn't. They knew exactly what it was. All right, let's, I'm going to pretend that all of you are um, computer programmers. Right? You're all computer programmers. You have lived it. You've breathed it. You love this stuff. That's your passion. And if I'm your boss and I said, hey, we need to get more. We need more computer programmers. Right? We need more. Go make more computer programmers. You would know what to do. You'd be like, I know what to do. I just need to you know, go talk to some people and recruit some people, and I need to, you know, kind of get them in the, you know, get some experience and some, you know, get them to know the programs and all that. But if you were to, you would know what to do. If you were to ask me, who's a pastor, to make a computer programmer, I would be clueless. I wouldn't know what to do. But Jesus is telling disciples to go make disciples. They, they knew it. What is a disciple? It's someone who follows somebody. They talk to them. They learn from them. 
They, they ask questions. They dialogue. They listen to them. They see how they respond in different times. And the disciples had spent three years following Jesus, being his disciples. And he says, I, I need you to go do this again. Keep repeating it. But he said, but here's a twist. Instead of you being a rabbi and finding, you know, 10 followers or so, we're going to do this in the church. We're going to do this in the church. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you. You're going to do this one-on-one. -on -one. You're going to do it in communities. We're going to put these churches in these different cities, and these are going to be discipleship factories. People are going to learn about Christ there. They're going to read the Scriptures. They're going to learn and understand what it says and how to, what it means. They're going to learn how to take the, their situations in their life and apply it to God's Word and follow Christ that way. It's going to happen not by a rabbi and, and, and students, but here in the church. It made sense to them. So if it doesn't make sense to us, we've got to say, what have we been doing in the church all these years? Why does it not make sense? We, of all people, should understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to say, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn what he says. I'm going to um, dialogue with other people so I can become more like Christ. So that's kind of the problem of the church these days, and we need to break through that, right? Um, how do we break through? What's our goal? Uh, you can look at it many different ways. There's different catechisms that give different examples of this, but I'm just going to stick with Scripture. And in Romans 8.29, it gives us this great little, I think, image of what we're called as disciples. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. What is a disciple? It's someone who is conformed to Christ. That we look like Christ, right? That's our goal. And as a church, each and every one of us, our desire when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed needs to be, how am I conforming? How am I becoming more like Christ? In every way. In each part of us. That's our, our mission, our goal, to know Christ, to become like Him, Right? So let's, let's break this into three parts. The remaining of our time, uh, and then over the next couple of weeks, we'll kind of hash this out a little bit too. But um, here, to know Jesus is to think like him. All right, let's talk about our minds first and just how we think. All right. Um, so as a disciple, we need to bring our minds before the Lord. Like God has given us these brains. He's given us our minds, and we got to put our minds under the, under the scope of discipleship and let our minds be renewed and, and the way of our thinking be aligned to that of Christ. Loving God with all of our mind, right? To seek to understand and, and, and see the depths of God's majesty, of His love, of His power, of His grace. Here in Romans, I mean, Paul really... Paul does so much in this book of Romans. It's so deep, but it, even just this, he traces the mind and the mind that is being discipled by God. And look in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Okay, so those who are in the flesh, those who are in the world, their mind thinks about the world. Right? But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, 
but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And right there, he's saying that if you are in the world, you're going to think like the world. But if you are in Christ, you are to think like Him. And it would be a shame to be in Christ, but think like the world. Okay, it would be a shame, but so many of us do that because we have not given our minds to being discipled and to be changed and transformed to be that of Christ. But he keeps going. In Romans 12, too, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, letting your mind be transformed so that you can understand the will of God, His good and pleasing will. I mean, that happens only when we submit to Him. And then as He keeps going in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Say, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other as Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind, with one voice, you may glorify the God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he kind of walks through that, that passage of just how our minds are transformed to be able to um, th- be governed by the Spirit, to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, and to think like Him, and then with that we understand Him and we glorify Him with one mind, together with one voice giving glory to our God. This involves right thoughts about God, understanding the Trinity, understanding our theology and our salvation, right? The depths of scriptures, understanding God's word. Right? It will take the rest of our lives to do it. This is not an easy task. You're not going to do it by the, you know, in the next three weeks or whatever. It's going to take you your lives, but it's taking our minds and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm submitting this to the Lord. Lord, take what I have and help me understand and help me think, be governed by the Spirit, not the world. That's the first step in our discipleship. But here's the problem. So many of us, we equate spiritual discipleship or spiritual growth with not just knowledge, just knowledge. The person who knows the most Bible verses, that's the most mature person in in the group, right? The person who knows the order of the minor prophets in order, that's the most spiritual person. I mean, that's what we do, kind of, you know, but is that true maturity? It's not. But we have equated that just with information. The person who knows the most information, that they, they're the smartest. Um, on the airplane coming back from Israel, I, you know, you have the, t- the, the movie. They have like thousands of movies, you know, you can watch. So I watched the one on Elvis, you know, and uh, it's kind of interesting. But afterwards, I read about Elvis, and I read this. Um, it didn't show this in the movie, but uh, that he went to summer camp. Um, church, his church sent him to summer camp for five years. Um, and each year, in order to go to summer camp, he could go for free, but he had to memorize 300 scriptures. So over five years, Elvis memorized 1,500 verses. But what did that do for his soul? Did that, just knowing verses, did that change his heart? According to the movie, no. <laughs> right? Obviously, I don't know much about him, but it didn't seem like it. It seemed like it was just mental information. Right? And so, for us, it's just knowing, just, just knowing the script. That's good. That's good. That's so important. I'm not trying to say that's not important. It's huge. But there are some people that, that they have all the information, but their hearts are still not transformed. They're still not a disciple of Jesus. You think of Judas, right? They're in the upper room when Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to deny me. 
um, it's really interesting in the wording here. The disciples, they all said, no, surely it's not me, Lord. Right? But you know what Judas said? He said, surely it's not me, Rabbi. Very different. Surely it's not me, teacher. Or the others were saying, surely it's not me, Lord. It, for the disciples, Jesus had gone to, from a rabbi to a Lord, someone that they worshipped. But Judas, it stayed right there at teacher. He had all the information. He saw everything, but his heart was not transformed. And so that's just the danger, right? Transforming our minds is huge. It's very important, right? But it's not everything. But we as followers of Christ, if we're going to be disciples of him, if we're going to grow, we need to give our minds. We need to learn how to think like him, okay? That's the first part. And the second part is our bodies. To know Jesus is to act like him, right? Or say it another way, to, to do what Jesus did. Does that mean we're supposed to wear sandals, robes, and, and beards for the guys? Um, no. Does that mean that we need to go back to 1995 and all put on WWJD bracelets? Remember those? What would Jesus do? You know? Um, no, but we, we, it's clear through Scripture that Jesus says, I'm, I'm setting an example for you that you need to follow. You need to follow this example. In John 13, when he had washed his disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, if that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set for you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So it's clear, if we are going to be a disciple of Christ, right, we, we don't only got to think like him, but we do what he does, what he did, right? And uh, there's other examples. I mean, in Matthew 20, it's um, Jesus saying, you know, the Gentiles are all about power and authority and who's most important. But he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I didn't come here to be served. I didn't come here to have authority. All right, I came here to be a servant. And so you follow that example. Be the servant of all. And if you want more, Philippians chapter 2, one of the great passages about just seeing the humility of Christ. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out for your interests, but to the interests of others. And then it talks about Jesus and how he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we're going to follow Jesus' example, it's all right there. It's about self-sacrifice, all right? About being a servant to others to other people and to see their needs above ourselves and in front of ourselves. These are huge. It gets harder. I mean, Peter, if it wasn't hard enough, that's not hard enough. 
in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this. He says, To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Ah, Christ suffered as an example so that you would be able to suffer too and suffer in a holy way. Well, that's tough. That's hard. And I know that there's many ways of suffering, but, um, you know, sickness, like even just suffering in sickness, is um, it's, the Lord has a way of really getting our attention right? And really um, pulling us and shaping us through these times, these times of sickness. And then there's several members in our church that can't be with us on a regular basis. They're watching us online, right? Because they, they can't because they're too sick. They're, they're at home. And that's hard. But how do we, this is something our culture doesn't talk about, right? But how do we learn to, to suffer in a way that glorifies God? How can we mature in that way? There's something really beautiful. There's something really um, powerful about it. I read this week about a man who had testicular cancer, and um, his life was eventually taken. But in the midst of all that, he says, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Why? Because I've come to know Christ in a deeper way that I've never had before. And I know some of you can testify to things like that. I mean, it's, it's not the thing I pray for. I don't pray for any of you to suffer, obviously. I'm praying for health. But I know there's times when we, when our members in our congregation, when we suffer that way, that it pulls us closer to Christ than anything else. So when we're looking at how we follow Christ, we have the first two. We have our, our minds being shaped by Christ, our bodies becoming servants and, and following his example. But here's the last one. And it's to know Jesus is to love him. All right, the missing piece here so far is the heart. And here it is, right in the middle, that all of this doesn't matter if we don't have a heart of love. If your heart is not transformed, right? Every, nothing else matters. This is the motivation that drives us. This is the motivation that drives us to, to be a servant of others. It's love. It's the motivation that moves us through life, having a, a, a love for God that nothing else can touch, being so in love with Him, having all of our affections drawn towards Him that we want Him more than anything else. When we read that parable about the treasure, that that's Jesus. Jesus is the treasure that I want in my life. He's the one I love. Jonathan Edwards, famous pastor in Massachusetts, um, during the Great Awakening, and through him many people came to Christ, but it was after this that he started looking at these lives and how they had grown in information, right? And they were doing the right things, but still their hearts were far from God. There was not a love and so he wrote this letter, a treatise on religious affections, and he addressed the issue of our deficient discipleship or in our inauthentic faith. And he coined the phrase holy affections as a distinguishing mark of discipleship. And this is what he says. He says, the supreme proof of a true conversion is holy affections, zeal for holy things, longing after God, longing after holiness, 
desires for purity. Look at that. Holy affections, zeal for holy things, and longing after God's, longing after holiness, longing for purity. Is that our hearts, do our hearts long for those things? Our hearts long for many things, but do they long for that? Are those the things that when you're uh, awake at night, when you're laying in your bed, you can't sleep, and you're praying for your, uh, your friends, your family, your kids, yourself, you're praying for these things, these holy affections, zeal for God, zeal to know Him more than anything else, first and foremost. This is a distinguishing mark of a transformed heart. Right? God transforms our hearts and motivates it to love. But that's not all. He, it's our hearts. It's our will, right? He's taking our wills that have been stubborn, right? Any of you guys have a strong will, right? It's, that's what he's working to. He's taking the strong will and taking it from let my will be done to let your will be done. It's our conscience, right? That our conscience that is so driven by shame and guilt that he's bringing peace and wholeness to our conscience, all right, our memories, these maybe some painful memories we have from the past that he's, he's working and taking and shaping and, and, and helping us to see that he was in the midst of that, that he was there, he was with us even during those hard times. It's our imaginations that he's also working and he's changing and that we've used our imaginations for so many one crazy things, but now we can use our imaginations for the, the Spirit, for the, for the Lord. Lord's shaping these things. He's taking these things and he's working these things. But here's our problem. I can't see your hearts. As your pastor, I don't know if God is transforming your heart. I don't know. I mean, it's hard enough time to see my own heart, right? We're told that our heart is deceitfully wicked, right? It's tricky. And so how do we know that our hearts are drawn towards Christ? I look at what Moses said to the Israelites as they were about ready to enter the promised land. Remember he said, when you enter the promised land, if you worship God with all of your heart, he's going to give you a heart of flesh. And and he's going to bless you and you're going to flourish. And all that you touch and all that you experience is going to have God's blessing on it. That's if you worship the Lord your God. But if you worship the idols in the land, those idols made out of stone that can't hear, can't listen, can't speak, can't move, you're going to become like them. Your heart is going to become a heart of stone. So it's up to you. Worship the Lord your God and have a heart of flesh or worship the idols and be, uh, have a heart of stone. And, and so the great wonder is what will they do? You know, but we know through the history that more often than not, they worship the idols. And so then Jeremiah comes, and he, he writes this, this, this passage in Jeremiah 17. He says, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their heart. He's saying, your sin is engraved on the stone, on your stone heart. All right, they became like that, and they were dead and they were wicked, and they, they did not glorify God. They, they tried to look out for themselves and their own authority and their own power. But then he says, just a few verses later, he says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. 
They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends its roots into the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries of a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. I can't see your heart, but we see the fruit. We see the fruit in your life. Do you have a heart of stone or do you have a heart of flesh? As followers of Christ, God has come and he's already changed our hearts. Ezekiel tells us, this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's the beautiful thing. That God is at the work of turning stone into flesh. And if you are in Christ, he's changed your heart. He's put his spirit in you. He's given you a new heart. And you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are a disciple. And if you are a disciple, you are to give your whole life to him, your mind, your body, your heart, and let him keep changing that things. That you will be less concerned about the things of the world and more concerned about God's holiness, about his, his glory. And I just am just struck, what would a church look like if we were like that? What would a church look like if we, if we were so committed to our own discipleship, to becoming like Christ, that we thought like Him, that we acted like Him, that we loved Him and loved like Him? I think that's a church that changes the world. Friends, as, I, um, as we kind of stand at the beginning of the new year still, and as we're looking at who our church is, who our church has been in the past, and we celebrate that, but now we're looking towards the future, and who are we going to be, and this is what our church needs to be. This is why I'm here, and this is, I, I hope this is why you're here too. I hope this excites you. I hope this gives you direction in life, that we, we're here not to just kind of play the game of church and kind of come and do our thing and leave and, and just smile and, hi, how you doing and all that, but we're here to be transformed and we want to transform each other. And this will change how we do ministry. It's going to change how we talk to each other, even in small groups. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But this is language that we need to put into our, even in our small groups. So we, have, we live in a culture that, that desires um, being youthful and young. And that's great. I love that. But as followers of Christ, let's grow towards maturity. Let's keep pressing and seeking the Lord. And let's be bringing our minds, our actions, our hearts before Him that He would change us little by little, right? I know it takes time. It takes a, lot, it takes a long time. We're not in a rush. But little by little, are we growing to become more like Christ? I want you to think about this this, this week. Think about this week. As you go throughout your days, but as you're, maybe as you're with your family or friends or on the dinner table, think about how are you, how is your mind being discipled and what you think about and what you're reading and what you're learning? And how is your, your heart growing in its affections towards God? Just, just being struck with how much He loves you. And how are you displaying that in your service towards others, in your love towards others? And I think if we're able to think about some of these things and really evaluate, I think we're, we're at a good place. And I'm excited for what God will do. I'm excited for what God will do in His church when we truly uh, seek to know Him with all of our hearts. Amen.